Excellent. I got to church this morning, and I saw a bunch of cars over there, and I'm like, whoa, we're going to be packed this morning. <laughs> Soon to realize there was a big national tractor pulling thing going on across the street, whatever. One of these days, one of these days, people, we can only hope and pray. Well, my name is Ben Espinosa. I serve as a pastor of community life here at Covenant Church, and I just want to welcome you here. If you've been going here for 40 years, if you've been here for 40 minutes, I want to welcome you here. And if this is your first or second time here to Covenant Church, I'd encourage you to go to the back table over there, fill out a brown card, put it in the basket, and we'll get you a nice Covenant mug, which is great, really great to drink out of. Ceramic, it's beautiful. I love it. Well, hey, this morning we'll be finishing up our series in the book of James called Theology in Motion. And I've really enjoyed this series, and I hope you have too. And I'm kind of bummed that we're going to be wrapping this up right now, but we have some exciting stuff planned for the fall, so you don't want to miss it. And I, I want to begin by showing us what we've learned uh, through the book of James here, right here. A bunch of different cool things. Is this working? Is it on? There we go. <laughs> this is a list that Terrence Armentiano, one of our elders over there, actually put together. He was actually supposed to preach this week, but it's my pleasure to fill in for him. Uh, basically, a bunch of different cool things, okay? How to live our lives as servants rather than demanding to be served, considering our jo- trials as joys, not just hearing the word, but doing the word, not being judgmental, but extending mercy, walking in works that reveal our faith, being doers of the word and not hearers only, watching our speech, pursuing true wisdom rather than false wisdom, pursuing godliness and not worldliness, submitting everything we have to God, and learning to walk in humility and seeing money rightly. So there's a bunch of cool things that we've learned so far in the book of James. So today, James, he kind of sort of saves the best for last, in my opinion. And before we get into this text, I want to share a little bit of a story. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to take a class on the philosophy of logic. And it was a super cool class, okay? I love my peers. I love my professor. The textbook was amazing. But like any other student, I had a hard time uh, trying to work and take classes at the same time. And I had trouble finding good study time so I could study for this class. And I remember there was this one exam that I was absolutely unprepared for. And I went to class nervous and anxious. And I couldn't pay attention to my professor's lecture because I knew that there would be this crazy exam at the end. And I remember calling my father during a break and saying, Pop, I'm going to fail this exam, and I'm going to fail this class. And I was a little more dramatic back then. And my life is going to be ruined as a result. And my father was like, dude, who cares if you bomb an exam? No one. So that helped me a little bit, but not quite. So I prayed. My last resort was prayer. I prayed and I asked the Lord to either work the circumstances somehow so I wouldn't have to take this exam or give me the knowledge and the peace that I needed to take the exam. So I was sitting in the class as the professor was handing out that exam. And as soon as he finished handing out the exam, somebody pulled the fire alarm. Some beautiful idiot pulled the fire alarm. The whole building evacuated, and everybody waited outside for 45 minutes. And that exam that I was so anxious and nervous about became a take-home exam that I could finish on my own time, using my own notes and at my own pace. 
See, God used that circumstance, however juvenile, however, however immature I was, to show me the power of prayer. And I haven't been the same since. So today in our passage, we're going to be talking about the power of prayer. And before I get into it, let me say this. I'm not going to be teaching on every single thing the Bible has to say about prayer. That's a different sermon for a different series. I'm just going to preach on what James has to say about prayer. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to James chapter 5, verse 13. The Word of the Lord says this. It says, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open up your word, that you'll illuminate it, Lord, and that you'll open up our minds, our hearts, our ears, and our hands, Lord, so that we can receive your word with joy. Transform us from the inside out, Lord, so we can be participants in the redemption of the world, Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's get some context for these verses right here, okay? Imagine you're James, and you're getting through writing your epistle that you know that people will love and cherish for quite a while. And you've given us a whole host of commands to do. In fact, he, and throughout 108 verses, he gives us 60 commands, 60 obligatory commands that we need to follow. Like I said, love everybody. Don't judge anybody. Submit all your love to God. Treat others with respect. After all of that, how do you cap off a letter to your audience? Now, let me remind you here that James is writing to Jewish Christians who were scattered all throughout the land and were persecuted because of their faith. These were people who needed encouragement in their faith because their faith was challenged at every turn. And James wanted them to put their theology, what they believe about God, into motion and to focus on living out the Christian life in a meaningful way. What are you going to say to them to end your letter? James has spent five chapters telling us to focus inward, to take what we know about God in our minds, and he's trying to get us to manifest that to the world. But James doesn't focus terribly on getting to know God in this book. And he says that you need to know God, that you need to show that you know God, but he doesn't actually show you how you know God until now. He says this in verse 13. He says, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Now remember, he's pretty blunt as he's been throughout the rest of the book. But this is profound because the rest, the whole thrust of this book is looking inward and pushing outward, never flying upward toward God. But that's exactly what he does in this passage this morning. He's talking, he's talked about hardship 
before in this book. Remember, this is a group of Jewish Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, and as a result, were being super discouraged or straight up leaving their faith behind. He tells these people to have joy in the midst of these trials and temptations because God is building perseverance and character in them and being glorified through them. And, but what he says here is, if you're going through something tough, you have to pray. Pray it up. Or maybe it's quite the opposite. Possibly some of these people back in the church were doing pretty well for one reason or another. What should their response be? Praise. James is challenging his people, and he's challenging us to look at our circumstances and find our complete rest in God. Things are going poorly? Pray. Things are going great? Praise. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, God should be the first to hear about it. We assume because God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's omniscient, he knows everything, we assume that he doesn't really want to hear from us. But like a loving father who cares for us, he wants us to go to him with everything that we have. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to call God our father who is in heaven. And look at what James says in verse 14. He says, are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, our response when we get sick so often is, well, I'm going to get the ibuprofen or... I need to go to the doctor. Or if you're like me, I have a headache. This isn't going to end well. Some of you are like me, whatever. But James says our first impulse should be to get on the phone with your pastors or with your elders and ask them to pray over you. And I think one of the downfalls of the Western church is that we have such access to medical care that praying or having people pray over you often becomes our last resort. It isn't seen as good medicine. We often see it as something that we do if all else fails. Now, I took a class in college with a professor who travels the world constantly, and he said that one of the starkest differences between the American church and the booming, growing church in Africa is that when somebody's sick, they don't call a doctor or reach for the antibiotics. Their impulse is to pray over people and anoint them with oil. Now, I'm not saying don't take your medicine, okay? When you're sick, you should take medicine. But what I'm saying is that our first impulse should be to have people pray on our behalf. I think we've really lost the sense of going to God with all of our needs first. And it's interesting that James says, call the elders. Why? Because pastors and elders and teachers are God's anointed leaders in the local church. They're not more holy than anyone else, but God has placed them in an authoritative role in the local church. And because of this, we're to obey them. They're called to love people. They're called to shepherd people. They're called to protect the body. And a function of that is to pray for people and assist in spiritual and physical healing. And James prescribes that the elders of the church should anoint people with oil and pray over them. Now, oil isn't some sort of magical force, okay, unless it's coconut oil, okay? That stuff is the bomb. You can cook with it. You can put it on your lips. You can use it to clean things. It's great. But back in ancient times, oil was a form of medicine. You put it on your wounds, and all the antioxidants and all the good stuff packed in the oil would heal your wounds and soothe your pain. But oil here is a little more figurative. It it symbolizes healing. 
Just like baptism in a way, the water itself is just water, but the symbolism is rich. And when we baptize people, there's something sacred about that. And it's just like communion, just bread and juice. But when we take it, Christ is present spiritually within the elements. And when we anoint people with oil, there's something richly symbolic about it that carries God's grace and healing. And look at what James says in verse 15. He says, such a prayer, a prayer offered by the elders of the church, offered in faith, will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. There's plenty of great benefits to having people pray over you. These prayers can heal your body. They can make you whole again. These prayers can offer the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we read these verses, we need to read them with a little bit of caution because we tend to read these passages normatively. But when you read these verses like this, you need to understand that these are very in general kind of verses, okay? In general, such a prayer will heal the sick. In general, you will be forgiven. There's an element of condition that's loaded within these verses. You're not going to be forgiven your sins if you haven't repented. But let me tell you what, these kinds of prayers that James is talking about, prayers from leaders of the church over you to heal your body physically and spiritually, those are powerful. So if you're hurting because of circumstances, pray it up. If you're happy and overjoyed, praise it up. And if you need medical assistance before you do anything, ask others to pray over you. But James doesn't stop there. He wants us to realize just how powerful prayer can truly be. He says this in verses 16 through 18. He says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. So James continues this idea of confessing sins and asking forgiveness in this passage. And confessing sins is one of those things that we as evangelicals don't really get or understand, all right? When we think of confessing sins, we often think about going to a confessional or confessing our wrongdoings to a priest. But that's not what James is envisioning here. What James is getting at here is that through the regular ongoing practice of confessing our sins to our brothers and sisters, we can experience true healing. Now let me say something about the relationship between sin and sickness In in the verses we just read, the preceding verses, James seems to imply that sometimes sickness can be caused by a lack of repentance. Now, that runs contrary to the way some of us think, but according to Scripture, it's a very real concern. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see that people were practicing communion, the very thing that we're going to practice here in a few moments. People were practicing communion while living in unconfessed sin. Because of that, they were getting sick and dying. And sickness isn't God's intended plan for the world. Sickness is the result not only of the reality of sin, but also of the sin that we sometimes harbor and embrace within our own lives. That's why Paul says that whenever we commit sexual immorality, we're committing sin against our own bodies because the result of sin is physical sickness and death. I'm not saying if you have a headache, you're in sin, or if you broke your arm, you're guilty of idolatry. I mean, you probably are. But the two aren't necessarily related, okay? What James envisions here is that we'll experience both physical and spiritual healing if we confess our wrongdoings to one another. 
It's a culture where we're free to be vulnerable with others and for others to be vulnerable with us. That's a radical departure from where, when we're at, where we're at in the church today. We tend to keep our sins to ourselves for fear that we'd be shunned by the community. There's a genuine fear there when James says that there shouldn't be. And one of the greatest benefits of confessing your sins to someone is that you don't get caught up in the sin that eventually takes your life. Listen to what James had to say in chapter 1. He says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. If you don't cut off the sin in your life by confessing your sins to God and to others, you run the risk of giving your life over to death. I don't need to tell you about the number of pastors and religious leaders who have gone on living secret lives of sin while trying to lead God's people. They've lacked accountability. And in the church, we don't really have mechanisms in place where we can be vulnerable with others so we can stop sin in its tracks. But not only do we need to confess our sins to one another, we need to pray for one another. And James says here that when we pray for one another, we experience healing. Again, it's that sense of spiritual and physical healing that happens when we intercede on others' behalves. But here's the kicker. When you have righteous people praying over you, those people who love God and love others wholeheartedly without abandon, God is going to hear their prayers. And James points to the example of Elijah, who was like any of us. He prayed that there'd be no rain for over three years. And then he prayed that there would be rain, and there was in abundance. That's the power of prayer right there. And it's a theme that James has been getting at throughout the whole entire book. If you want something from God, ask him in faith and don't doubt his power. Remember, James is all about putting your faith into motion through doing good works. And in this text right here, he's implicitly saying that if you believe in the triune God who created the universe and every single thing in it, who rescued Israel from Egyptian, Egyptian oppression, who sent his son to die for our sins and raised him from the dead so that we can experience life everlasting, if you really believe that stuff, then you're going to be on your knees around the clock asking for God's favor and blessing and his help. And if you're not on your knees constantly seeking help or praising the Lord, then you probably need to check your heart. Elijah was a man like any other, just like you and me. But his faith abounded and he pleaded with God without wavering. That's what a prayer of a righteous person does. It moves mountains and it stops the rain. So James is telling us in this passage that our first priority as the people of God is to pray and to be on our knees without ceasing. And we need to have a culture of prayer and confession in our churches because it helps us grow in our relationship with God. And finally, here's what James says to end his book, to cap off all the good stuff that he's told us to do. He says this, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, You can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and will bring about the forgiveness of many sins. As I've mentioned before, James can be very, very pointed in his criticism, but he calls these Jewish Christians brothers 
and sisters. He cares for them. And his pastoral heart is no more evident in this letter than it is right here. He says, look, I've told you the truth in this letter. And if you see people not walking in the truth, save them from it. Because if you do, you're saving someone from death itself. Now, these last couple of verses right here are only one sentence in the Greek. It seems relatively insignificant compared to the rest of the book. But when you read these verses in the context of the passage that we've been reading through, the implication becomes crystal clear. The closer you are to God and his people, the further you are away from death itself. The more we keep lifting our concerns to God and praising him for our blessings, the further we'll be away from pain and despair. The more you're in connection with the Christian community and confessing your sins and shortcomings with your brothers and sisters in Christ, the further away you will be from loneliness and isolation. And the more you do the stuff of the gospel, caring for widows and orphans, putting your faith into motion, the less you will do the work of the world. John Bunyan once wrote this, Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. So to summarize where we've been, I want to suggest three things that we need to keep in mind in the Christian life when it comes to prayer. Number one is that prayer should be our first impulse in every single situation. Say, for instance, you got some really bad news. It could be about your health, your financial situation, your job, your family. I want you to think about your first reaction, okay? Now, for some of us, it's usually a nice, calm, well, you know, God's in control. For others, it's, why, God, why? And for others, it's, okay, I'm going to take this chair, and I'm going to smash it to pieces, and I'm going to feel better about it, okay? Now, which of those three responses are good? Of course, it's wrong to be angry. Of course, it's wrong to blame God. But it's also the wrong response to just say God is in control because you're acknowledging that he's there and he's working everything together for good. That's great. But you're not running to him. So many times in the church, we want to cover up our problems with cliches and platitudes. God's in control. God's working everything together for good. Or God will never give you more than you can handle. Those things all may be true, but the first response should be to turn to your heavenly Father who loves you. We can mentally assent to that truth, but our first impulse should be always to pray when things go wrong. Now think of a time when something went your way, okay? You got a promotion, you got extra vacation time, you scored some extra guac from Chipotle for free, and maybe you got a clean bill of health from your doctors, okay? What's your first reaction? You're probably like, this is exciting, this is good news. And then you just went on with your life. But need I remind you, like I said a few weeks ago, all belongs to God. Your money, your time, your health, it's all His. And the very fact that He allows you to breathe is an occasion for worship. Oswald Chambers says this, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. So if you're going through tough stuff, pray it up. If things are going well and getting better, praise it up. 
Because your heavenly Father wants to hear from you. The second thing I think we need to remember is this, is that your prayers can move mountains. I think one of the reasons we struggle with prayer is that we don't really think it has the power to change things. But like James says, look at Elijah, just a regular dude like you and me. Look at what he could do with unwavering faith. Like I said before, if you really believe in the power of God to make big things happen in this small world that he's created, then you'll be on your knees every single hour of every single day. I know many of you have spent years praying for, the lo- for your loved ones to come to know Jesus. I know many of you are still praying for long-term healing for yourself and for your loved ones. I know many of you are still praying that prayer. Martin Luther once said this. He says, No one can believe how wonderful prayer is and what it can affect except those who have learned it by experience. Whenever I've prayed earnestly, I have been heard and have obtained more than I've prayed for. God sometimes delays, but He always comes. Don't give up on prayer, folks. It's one of the most powerful tools that we have in our relationship with God. And finally, another thing I want to bring up is that praying up, in, and out leads you to live up, in, and out. Here of Covenant, we make liberal use of the triangle image. And the triangle represents our relationship with God. That's our up. Our relationship with others in the Christian community. That's our in. And our relationship with people in the local community, that's our out. Our goal as Christians is to be an equally balanced triangle where we love God and we love everybody else with everything that we are. But let me suggest this to you, okay? When you pray, pray up, in, and out. Pray for your relationship with God that you would come to know Jesus more and more and that you would put your faith completely in Him. Pray for your relationship with other Christians and pray that God would bless them and heal them if they need it. And pray for people who don't know Jesus yet, that they would come to know him and that you could be involved in the process of that. The more you pray this way, the more it will be evident in your life. Soren Kierkegaard, one of the church's greatest theologians of all time, he said this powerful quote, and it's been hijacked by other people. It says, prayer doesn't change God but it changes him who prays. Praying up, in, and out will help you live up, in, and out. And here at Covenant, there's all sorts of prayer meetings that happen all the time. Every single Sunday morning, people gather in that room over there, the infant room. See my laser pointer? It's over there, okay? I've been waiting for an excuse to use this, okay? They gather every single Sunday morning around 8.45 a.m. to pray for people's needs and to pray for the church, pray for our community, And every second and Thursday of the month, in fact, this Thursday at 7 p.m., people gather right here in the sanctuary to pray. And there's plenty of ways that you can be involved in prayer here at Covenant, six times a month just about. So as a church, we need to recover a culture of prayer where we go to God with every single need and every single praise that we have for Him. We can't forget that it's the gospel that empowers us to live as prayerful people who put our faith into action. Because of the gospel, we can come before God with our concerns. Because Jesus has laid down his life for us. And he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. We have access to God the Father. 
Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. But yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And that's what we celebrate right here. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that we can have access to God in this life and still live with him in the next. This, the communion, this is the lifeblood of every single thing that we do. Think about the book of James. Without Jesus, it leads you to loneliness and pain and despair because you're forced to do things. It becomes legalistic. But through Christ, with the power of Christ and His Holy Spirit, we can live lives of great peace and joy and come before God our Father with all of our needs. That's the gospel right there. That's the good news. That's what we're all about. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here. And I want to say a few words about communion, this thing that we're about to celebrate. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then I invite you to come up during the last three songs. Grab a hunk of bread. The, the stuff on the green plate is gluten-free, so save that for people who actually need it. And dip it into the cup. Dip the bread into the cup. And the bread represents Christ's body broken for us. And the cup represents Christ's blood shed for us. And if you don't know Jesus, I encourage, I'd encourage you just to refrain from taking communion. Enjoy the worship. Hang out. And if anybody wants to come up here and pray, or I can pray with you, come up here. I'd love to pray with you. And of course, if you want to give your offering, you can do that at one of the lockboxes located at the exit here. Things are going poorly, pray it up. Things are going great, praise it up. And if you need healing, ask one of us and we'll pray for you. Let's pray right now. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have access to you, Lord, through your son, Jesus. I pray that you'll empower us to be a people who turn to you with everything, Lord. I pray that our first impulse in the life, the Christian life, will be to turn to you for prayer, for praise, Lord. Instill within us that desire. Help us to be a praying people, who turn to you for every single thing that we need because you, you alone, Heavenly Father, are the anchor for our souls. In Christ's name, amen.